This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. I believe that God does impossible things, and I believe that Jesus invites us into that reality. I want to make a few disclaimers because I recognize that discussing miracles can be a little tricky. So I want to tread very carefully. I want to be very smart in how we walk through these scriptures and how we unpack this. But I also want to stir us to be a courageous people in our pursuit that are willing to be a people of faith to say, I want to believe God for the impossible. I want to believe God to do miracles in my own life. First and foremost, I want to give us a few definitions Uh, a couple purposes for the miraculous that I think are going to be healthy guidelines for us as a church, that are going to be healthy to help us uh, as we seek out the supernatural. Secondly, I want to look at a few key miracles that Jesus performed. In the scriptures in the New Testament, there's close to 37, some say 38, miracles that are recorded that Jesus performed, and many more that weren't recorded that he also performed. And so today I want to actually be diligent in how we go about examining the scriptures and these stories because I believe they're intended to cause us to marvel at how amazing God is. They're not just stories about them, although that's true. They're stories about us. And I believe an open invitation for you and I to come to Jesus and experience his miraculous hand. And then thirdly, I want to encourage us to be courageous. I want us to be a people of faith who believe God for the impossible, no matter how small or big, no matter how outlandish or crazy, that we would not just be content to walk away, say that was nice, and then not actually live any differently. I want us to recognize that the power of God is for today, that miracles are for today, that signs and wonders are for today, and that we would be a people not afraid to pray audaciously and to believe God boldly, for these things. I think for some of us, our apprehension to lean into the miraculous is that we're worried about what other people are going to say and or think about us. We're worried that maybe sometimes things might not work out or occur the way we want them to. And sometimes we're really afraid that if God doesn't show up and do what we are believing for him, that somehow that puts us out on a wire. And I would say this to us as a church, Jesus is the miracle maker. I'm not. Jesus is the one that does signs and wonders. You're not. And so we can trust God with the things that are of God. Meaning that the things that belong to Jesus, the things that belong to the supernatural, the things that belong to the Holy Spirit are things that you and I can trust him with because they're his things. And I know that for some of us, depending upon the background you came from, you may have seen some of this maybe play out in different ways over the years and maybe maybe even potentially abused or maybe misused. And so I want to lead us in such a way that would bring just a, a real comfort to you today as we, as we step in and lean into this because I recognize there are people here from all different church backgrounds and all different walks of faith. But like I said in the beginning, I wanna press you. I wanna stretch you today. I believe God wants to enlarge your capacity to believe him for more. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up with me to John chapter 20. We're gonna start here as just sort of an introduction to our primary text that we're gonna look at today, which is gonna be John chapter 5. But in John chapter 20, verse 30 through 31, I mentioned that I want to set a framework, and here it is, reading from the ESV. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. 
Okay, so John, at the end of of his gospel, is coming to us and telling us that there are actually more things that Jesus did that they didn't have room for on the scroll. Okay, how many know they didn't have digital Kindles and iPads back then? All right, they had to be very choosy, and I believe the Holy Spirit was very specific and very choosy with what they wanted to include so that it could speak in and to us. And so John says this, there's many things, many other signs and miracles and wonders that Jesus did in the presence of disciples. But, here it is, verse 31, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so I want to begin today by saying that the purpose of miracles is twofold. Are you ready for it? Number one, that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ. The Christ means the anointed one. It's the Messiah. Miracles are to open up our hearts to belief. And that is the primary reason, one of the primary reasons that Jesus does miracles. Not just to astonish, not just to heal, not just because he had a heart of compassion, although all those things are true. But the primary reason that he does miracles is to open our hearts to belief, to the impossible. And number two, by believing that you and I would have life in his name. In other words, that you and I would experience the radical and abundant fullness of life that flows from God. Jesus performed miracles that people would believe in him and have fullness of life in him. That's God's heart for us. That's God's heart for you today. That you would believe him for the impossible, and that you would experience his life, the life that comes only from the Father. I think this is key for us so that we don't get off the beaten path. It's very enticing and easy to seek signs and wonders for the sake of signs and wonders. And in this sense, when this happens, we become like the people in Jesus' day whom he warned against whom he cautioned us against. He says this in Matthew 16, verses three through four. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky. This is true, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Verse four, an evil and an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. What is he saying here? Okay, and what am I trying to say here? I wanna say this. We don't seek Miracles for the sake of miracles. We don't seek signs for the sake of signs. Yes, miracles are a form of sign. Our goal isn't to access these things for the sake of these things. Our goal is to access Jesus. Our goal is Jesus. And so here's one of our key points today. Jesus himself is our reward, not just his stuff. Not just his miracles. Not just his blessings. Jesus himself, the presence and the gift of Jesus himself that now comes to us via his Holy Spirit is our reward. That should be our goal. That should be our focus. That should be our heart's pursuit. One of our core values here at Courageous Church is that we would live a courageous life devoted to Jesus. What's devotion? It's pursuit. When I fell in love with this woman who's sitting on the front row, and by the way, she is my wife. When I fell in love with her, I pursued her. I was in hot pursuit of her heart. And in the same way, Jesus invites us to know him intimately. I've said this before in this church that the goal of discipleship is intimacy with Jesus. A lot of us think it's actually doing things, but it's actually intimacy with him. It's closeness. It's being in relationship with him. That's the goal for our life. And so I would say to us right at the start, 
that we're not seeking miracles for the sake of miracles, we're seeking Jesus. Jesus is our pursuit. And I hope and pray that your heart today would be to draw closer to him, to be devoted to him, to worship him, to behold him, to adore him. I believe we need to be so rooted in this reality that when we experience the miraculous, we can rejoice and we can celebrate as his beloved, as those who are already called and affirmed and caught up and found in the love of the miracle maker. Jesus wants us to experience every good thing that he has for us. I believe this, but we need to be careful about good things because good things can become idols if we're not careful. Idols are simply anything that we worship other than God. And as a church, I want us to be free to explore these things, all the good things that God has for us, but with our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus, which Hebrews says is the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the miracle maker. And so we need to keep our eyes fixed on him. And that's my challenge to us as we venture into this series. I believe that God's gonna do miracles among us. Not just in the series, I mean as a church in this valley, as a redemptive, transformative presence within our city, I believe that Jesus, the miracle maker, is going to show up and do things that blow people's minds. Are you ready for it? So I want us to be free to lean in and explore but I want us to remember and to be anchored in this reality. The purpose of miracles is to open our hearts to belief and it's so that we would experience abundant life. That's Jesus's heart for us. Let's look at some ways in which Jesus, as a miracle maker, does the miraculous. I wanna look at one of my absolute favorite stories in the Bible. And if you have your Bibles, you can go to John chapter five. I believe this is one of the great miracles that Jesus performs. And I love what it says about God's heart for us as a people. Go there with me. Put your finger in John 4 and 5 and hold your place there. Before we unpack this a little, I want to give you a little bit of context because I think it's important for us to know what Jesus is up to at this point within the gospel. Jesus had just come from Galilee up to Jerusalem. It's actually a trek, okay? Galilee's in the north, Jerusalem's in the south. Jesus makes his journey, his pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Before he was in Galilee, he was in Samaria, and the Samaritans and the Jews did not get along. All right, if you know your history, they share the same roots of faith, but the Samaritans were looked down on by the Jewish people. They were seen to be a people that weren't in covenant with the God that they worshiped, even though they shared the same roots. So Jesus comes to this woman, this Samaritan woman at the well, and upon revealing to her through a conversation about where she's at, that he is the Messiah, she goes back and tells everyone in her village about Jesus. So all the men and all the women rush out to meet Jesus and actually put a demand on him and say, would you stay with us and teach us? And so the scriptures say in John 4 that he actually stays two more days. He wasn't planning on it, but because the people came and put a demand on him, Jesus altered his course. This is important for us because I spoke about earlier about us being a people that aren't afraid to put a demand on God. I believe that in this hour, God is looking for people of faith that are not afraid to put a demand on him. What do I mean by demand? I mean, not afraid to believe him for impossible things. Not afraid to sit with him a little longer. Not afraid to sing a little louder. Not afraid to to go after him with all of their heart. And that is what this people did, although they did not know God in the same way that the Jews did. And so Jesus reveals to him that he is the Messiah, the Christ. And as a result of her testimony, they come to Jesus, and it says that many believed. Many believed. 
And the scriptures tell us this in John chapter 4, verse 42. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we now ourselves have heard it and know that this one is indeed the savior of the world. So in this short time span, Jesus has already performed two major miracles. He turns water to wine at Cana and he heals a dying boy. He's revealed himself to be Messiah and is declared by non-Jews to be the savior of the world. The word for savior here is interesting. It's the word soter in the Greek, and it's different from the word Messiah or Christ. In John's day, it was a term given to the emperor in Rome and had more universal implications for the one that would save. What we see quickly developing within a few chapters of John is this growing and developing revelation of who Jesus is and wants people to know he is and is revealing himself to be. And it's against this backdrop that we pick up with our primary text today, John chapter 5, verse 1 through 9. I'm going to switch and read from the NASB because I like the way it renders a couple of these verses. After these things, in verse 1, it says this, there was a feast of the Jews. So after Jesus had already done all that stuff, had been in Samaria, had been in, in Galilee, had performed two major miracles, had begun to reveal himself to be the Messiah, was declared to be the Savior of the world by a non-believing people. Okay, keep that all in your mind. After all these things, there was a feast, and so Jesus goes back to Jerusalem. He makes his trek up the mountain to Jerusalem. Now there in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, is a pool, which in Hebrew or Aramaic, some translations say, is pronounced Bethesda, having five porticos. In verse 3, in these lay a multitude of those who were sick, who were blind, who were lame and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. Now, some translations include this verse, some don't. But the NASB does, and I'm going to read it because I think it actually works. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he or she was afflicted. Verse 5, a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. 38 years. And Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been a long time in that condition. So he said to him, do you wish to get well? Verse seven, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. I believe that's why it's applicable to actually include verse four, because verse seven, which talks about the man needing to be put in the water when it's stirred up, is actually referring to what they believe the angel would come and do, okay? So, he says to Jesus, I've got nobody to lift me up off of my mat or my pallet and to bring me down into the healing water. But while I'm coming, somebody else jumps in front of me, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet or mat and walk. Immediately, the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Okay, I love this story, and, and there are so many amazing things going on. Firstly, we discover that the pool at Bethesda had attracted all sorts of sick people. So you had, you had blind people, you had lame people, you had crippled people, you had diseased people, you had people for which back then they didn't have modern medicine, so there were just people that you know, didn't live very long, they didn't have a very long life expectancy, who were just clinging to life. And they'd all come to this place because they had faith, they had hope that maybe God would heal them in and through the water. And they had this belief that at certain seasons, angels would come down and stir the water, and if they could just get into it, they would be healed. 
And so it's attracted all these people. And it's interesting to me that sick people are typically the ones that are the most attracted to Jesus. Jesus once said, I came for the sick, not for the righteous. He's called our great physician for a reason. Because I believe Jesus responds to people, not only in peril, but people who know the sickness of their own condition and are willing to be honest and transparent and vulnerable before him. And so here you have at this pool, at this gathering place, all these vulnerable sick people just hoping and believing for a miracle. And I'll say this, God always goes where he's wanted say it again. God always goes where he's wanted. Jesus shows up at precisely this moment when all the people had gathered together, hoping and believing for a miracle. It's here at Bethesda, which means, by the way, house of mercy, that Jesus slips through the crowd and he goes down to the water and he comes upon a man who's been sick for 38 years. Let that sink in for a moment. 38 years. You were fortunate if you could live to 40 in this day and age. Maybe 50. That's pushing it. So this man has literally been sick his entire life, so much so that he can't walk or he can't walk well. And he's sitting there on this mat, lying on the ground. We don't really know anything about him other than that he couldn't walk and he was super sick. And it was obviously so bad that he needed assistance. And Jesus comes to him in the midst of his agony and pain and suffering. And you think he would just lay his hand on him and heal, but he doesn't do that. What he does instead is he asks the man a question. He says, do you wish to get well? Do you wish to get well? We might look at that and think, Jesus, it's pretty obvious. I mean, the man is at the pool of Bethesda where people are going because they're hoping to get well. So Jesus, isn't it pretty obvious? But Jesus is looking deeper than the appearance He's looking deeper and he's looking beyond the physical condition. And he's trying to get at something within this man's heart. And we're going to see this illustrated a little bit later down as to why Jesus was doing this. And he says, do you wish to get well? And it's this question that I want us to wrestle with today as a church. Wherever you are in this room, whether you're battling physical sickness or spiritual sickness or emotional sickness, or maybe you're just at an impasse and you need a miracle. You need God to show up and do what only God can do, the impossible. I want to ask you, do you really want him to do the impossible? Do you really wish to get well? Do you really want to see him do that in your life? Because it might disrupt a few things. It might shake a few things up. It might cause a little bit of conflict within your life and relationships with others. A few weeks back, we looked at Matthew 10. We looked at Jesus' words saying to us that, behold, people, men and women will have conflict with each other. Sons and daughters will rise up against parents, brother against brother, for my name's sake. And so when Jesus comes to this man, it's almost as if he knows that there's something beyond the miracle that the man needs to understand before Jesus touches him and heals him. Do you wish to get well? Are you really ready for what I'm about to do in your life? Could be Jason's paraphrase today. And I want us to wrestle with this because I believe it reveals something about the nature of God and more precisely something about us. You see, I believe we're all masters at making excuses and constructing boxes. So let's talk about excuses and boxes. We could call these reasons why we don't 
allow or want God to work and do miracles in our life. And I'm not just talking about physical healing. The truth is there are many reasons why we make excuses to not experience the fullness of life that God has for us. Remember, the purpose of miracles is twofold, to believe and experience the life that comes from the Father. There are many reasons why we don't experience the miraculous, and I think that actually most of them have very little to do with healing. Have you ever said to God, God, if you would just do this, then I will fill in the blank? Have you ever said, if you just answer this prayer, if you could just speak to me in an audible voice, then I would give you my whole heart. Then I would serve you. And we make it conditional. And we say things like, if, 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 and if. And I think it speaks to a greater condition regarding our hearts that I believe we have to first come to terms with. And that excuse is control. You see, we're masters at wanting to be in control. And the greatest excuse that we give God is that we want to be masters of the ship. We want to have our hands on the wheel. We want to do things according to the way we want them to be done. Truth is, we all want control. And we want the outcome we want. And sometimes, we want the outcome that we think we deserve. And as a result... This sense of entitlement, this excuse-making, this stipulation-making that we place on God distances us from experiencing the fullness of life that he has for us. And so he comes to us, like Jesus did, stepping down into the water. And he asks us, do you really wish to get well? Do you really want to be made whole? And he's leading the man, and he's leading us to think deeper about what it is that God really wants to do within our lives. You see, I don't believe God is some cosmic Pez dispenser. He's not just some <laughs> cosmic vending machine. You don't just put in a nickel and get out a Snickers bar. Some of us, though, who are raised in the church develop these formulas subconsciously. If I pray a certain way, if I fast a certain amount of times, if I, if I raise enough hallelujahs, then God will come and do his thing. And God goes, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh No, 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 no. Like Jesus, he goes where he's wanted. And I believe for you and I, the challenge is to really examine our hearts and to ask ourselves, do we really want God in the way that we profess, in the way that we sing about do we really want him to come and to stir the waters of our soul and to disturb and disrupt the things that have such a grip on us? Are we really ready to surrender all? Jesus shows us that we don't approach God like a vending machine. We approach him as a loving father. That's actually how he shows us how to pray. And here we have a man who is both sick and I believe fatherless. Maybe, yeah, maybe he's got a biological dad. But spiritually, he's an orphan. He says this in verse 14. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. What could possibly be worse than being sick and crippled for 38 years? And yet that is exactly what Jesus is inviting us to wrestle with. Think about it. I think the answer is actually found by examining the question, do you wish to get well? 
You see, the word for well used here in the Greek is hugiis, which means to be made whole. It's actually broader and grander and bigger than just physical healing. There are actually other words like therapeo, which is the word we get therapy from, which are used to illustrate healing of the body. But here, Jesus is using a very specific word, and it's the word hugiis, and it means to be restored at every level. It's about wholeness, not just healing. And I love this. And so when Jesus is actually coming to the man, he's looking at him, and you and I are seeing the sick, crippled man. And the Pharisees and Sadducees are sitting there, and they see the sick and the crippled man. And all the disciples see the sick and the crippled man. And they're all expecting Jesus to do a physical miracle. And he does. But it's bigger than that. And so when he asks the man, do you want to be made whole? He's saying, yeah, I can heal you. I can fix your legs, but I want to fix your heart. I want to deal with this thing called sin. And that's why he says to him, go and sin no more in case something worse happens to you. What could be worse than being crippled and sick for 38 years? I'll tell you what's worse. Having a heart full of sin. Having a heart riddled with unforgiveness and despair. And Jesus says to the man, go and sin no more. He's releasing him. He's setting him free from the thing that could be the worser thing. He goes, yes, I've come to heal. I've come to restore. I've come to redeem. I've come to save. But I've also come to make you whole. I've come to make every part of you whole, not just your physical body. I want to touch your mind. I want to deal with those emotions. I want to get into your anger. I want to deal with your sadness. I want to mess with your thoughts. I want to put my arms around your heart. And I want you to know that I am here to make you whole. You see, I believe the greatest miracle today, and my hope for you is if you hear nothing else, is that you would hear this. I believe the greatest miracle that Jesus, the miracle maker, performs is when he touches and changes a heart. That's the greatest miracle that he wants to make happen for you. He wants to transform you from the inside out. He told the Pharisees to clean the inside of the cup. And he said things like, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of him. Why? Because it's what's going on in the heart. That is the real sickness. That is the real despair. And before we venture into the miraculous, and we talk about signs and wonders and healings, and we pray for these things, and we believe God for these things, the greatest miracle that Jesus wants to do is to change your heart. He wants to deliver you from your past and your baggage and your sin and your mistakes and your shame and your guilt. And he wants to bring you into a place of wellness and wholeness so that you and I can walk in wellness and wholeness as the people of God, as his beloved children. And so I want to ask you, what excuses have you made in your life to prevent Jesus from touching the deepest part of your heart? What have you held on to as control? I want to encourage you today to let the miracle maker take over. If you're here today and you've never surrendered your heart or your life to Jesus, in just a few moments, I'm going to ask Matt to come and to to pray with you and give you the opportunity to make the best possible decision that you could ever make in your life. 
Maybe you're here today and your issue is not excuses, it's boxes. Let's talk about boxes. Maybe you and I are really good at constructing mental and theological boxes around God. So much so that we've not allowed them to do the miraculous in our life. And in this way, maybe you're not like the crippled man in the story, but you're more like the religious leader looming in the background. You know, the ones that are upset that Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, that he worked and performed a miracle on the Sabbath, that he violated and and broke all the rules. We see this actually in verse 9 through 10, and then later in verses 16 through 17. Verse 9 says this, Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible. We do not allow you. This doesn't work within our theological box for you to do some work. And then in verse 16, For this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things, because the miracle maker was doing miracles on the Sabbath. And Jesus answers them, and I love this. I love this. He answers them, he says, my father is working until now. And I myself am working. He's a miracle maker. He's a miracle working savior. That's what he does. And he shows up. And the Pharisees miss the forest for the trees. And they're so stuck on the law and the regulations. And they've so missed the life of God that's come before them. And I think sometimes we do the same thing. When we say things like, ah, that just doesn't fit in my framework. Well, surely, God, you can't come and and, and do that in this church. Surely, God, you can't come and and blow our minds this way. Surely, we've always done it this way, and so we've got to keep doing it this way. And Jesus goes, oh, no, 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 I'm working. My father's up to stuff, and me too. Everything I see him do and hear him do, that's what I'm doing. And he comes, and he deliberately does this on Sabbath to make a point. You think Jesus could have done it on another day? He probably could have. But this is exactly what John, and I believe the Holy Spirit, wants us to cue in on. It's that he wants to shatter our expectations. He wants to blow up our boxes. And for those of you that have been walking with Jesus, this is hard. I wrote this post back in January, and I wonder if you'd just indulge me and let me read it to you. I I really have been wrestling with this for almost, like I said earlier today, 10 months I've been praying, God, what about miracles? What about what you want to see the church come to understand about your heart for today and for people? And I I just had this stirring, this sense that, God, you're wanting to do more. You're wanting to to move beyond the limitations that we place on you. And here's what I wrote, and I'm just going to read it to you because I feel like it's the best I can do today. I said this, oftentimes we too miss out and even oppose the miraculous because we're blind by our well-meaning but rather erroneous expectations of what we think God can, will, or won't do, when in reality, he's so much grander than we could ever possibly imagine. He's so much bigger than any of the boxes that we could ever put him in. But just like the people in this story, we've constructed systems that we think get us to God, when in fact, all they've ever done is point us to the dirty waters of Bethesda. Like them, we miss the greater opportunity to worship and to marvel at the feet of the miracle maker. And then we sit back in disbelief, wondering why we don't see or experience miracles. This sadly leads us to casually and sometimes forcefully buy into a false narrative that suggests that God would never do anything out of the ordinary, and he certainly wouldn't cause any of us any inconvenience or trouble. Surely he wouldn't heal or perform miracles on the Sabbath, would he? 
After all, we've spent so much time with our doctrines and our theologies and our belief statements and our committees. Surely he wouldn't interrupt our perfectly crafted services, would he? After all, we spent so much time setting up our lights, tuning our instruments, downloading the not-too-long transition video, Instagramming our favorite verse with the aid of a carefully photoshopped selfie, mind you, trying hard not to talk about money or make anyone uncomfortable with the length of our sermons, all while promoting and branding and stylizing and marketing to the masses that have come, oh, how have they come, to eagerly hope for some kind of interaction with the divine. Surely God must know that the system works. Meanwhile, a Messiah, an anointed one, a savior, slips through the crowd to perform many wonders, but once again leaves unnoticed. Do we miss the point and do we miss Jesus? Do we get so caught up in a system of doing church? And hear me on this. Do we get so caught up in a system of doing church and preserving Sabbath, of following other well-meaning religious leaders down a path that makes sense and agrees with us and fits in our boxes that we eventually persecute and kill our own king? Maybe not literally, or maybe not even immediately, but perhaps gradually and in other ways. Perhaps we've managed God right out of the picture by telling him, sorry, you don't belong here, and you can't have that part of my life. That's mine, that belongs to me. Or perhaps we've simply cut ourselves off from believing, like little children, that God could and just might actually be bigger and better and more beautiful and dangerous and demanding than we ever expected him to be. Perhaps it's time to wake up and stop waiting on angels to stir the waters of our discontented lives or pop preachers to tell us what's fashionable and realize that life himself, the way, the truth, the life, wants to rush in. That the miraculous is at hand. That all we could ever hope for and dream of is only scratching the surface of who Christ is and wants to reveal himself to be in our lives today. Not just in the not-too-distant future, when we finally appear more put together and knowledgeable, know my friends, miracles are not a thing of the past or the stuff of fairy tales or legend. They're not the sole property of the religious either. And they're certainly not reserved for those that would only study harder, try harder, or believe harder. They're happening every day, all around us, in us, through us, despite us, for the greatest and for the least of these. And I believe like many a wise man before me that even greater works are yet to come. That somehow, someway near pools filled with hungry, desperate, blind, bleeding, broken lives, Jesus is still willing and eager to make his way past the pretenders, to do the things that are still shocking and unexpected, to do many miracles. To all of us here today, my final invitation is this. It's for you and I to come and marvel at the feet of the miracle maker. It's to worship him with our heart and our mind and our soul and our strength. You see, I believe worship opens our eyes and it opens our hearts to wonder. It invites us to stand in awe of who Jesus really is. And when we do this, when we invite him to come through the power and the presence of his Holy Spirit, to touch and heal and change our hearts, he comes to do many miracles. Thank you for listening today. To find out more information about our church, including ways you can give, please visit us at CourageousChurch.com.